And now, Stein Online presents Mark Stein's Song of the Week. Hey, great to be with you. This is the week of Armistice Day, Remembrance Day, as we now call it in the British Commonwealth, Veterans Day in the United States, but Armistice Day originally, the day of the armistice, the day when the guns fell silent on the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month in 1918. And this year, the anniversary falls on the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month of the 11th year, 2011, 2011. And to mark the occasion, my friend Monique Foteau will join me for a live performance of one of the great songs uh, from the Great War, my favorite song from the war as it happens. And this is a very ambitious musical performance, a real epic in English, in French, summing up the entire history of this marvelous song. Uh, I hope we can pull it off. I know Monique can, but it may be way out of my league. That's coming up. Uh, the Great War may have been, quote, the war to end all wars, but it was a bonanza for Tin Pan Alley. More war songs were written for the First World War than for any other war before or since, and many of them resonate to this day from America. Over there, over there, send the word, send the word over there. Britain. Songs for over there. Mademoiselle from Armitage, Malibu. Oh, Mademoiselle from Armitage, Malibu. And songs for when you come home. How are you going to keep them down on the farm after they've seen Paris? How are you going to keep them away from Broadway, jazzing around, painting the town? But it's the ballads, I think. The catchpenny songs of love enlarged by the canvas they're played against. That was a favourite of the British Tommies in the hell of 1916, the year of the song. Uh, but for all those and many others, I do believe the loveliest song to emerge from the war is this. Roses are shining in Picardy In the house of the silver dew Roses are flowering in Picardy but there's never a rose like you. It's almost an art song rather than a pop song, yet it's utterly without the stiffness and pretension of so much of the English pseudo leading. And the roses will die with the summertime. And our In my 
It's an ethereally perfect union of words and music, with one teeny exception, which we'll come to later. Uh, as I said, it's almost an art song, and yet it's uh, muscular enough to work in other ways, too. <laughs> After the Second World War, Sidney Bechet got it moving. And a few years later, the platters mobbed up. Mop, mop, mobbity, mop. Mop, mop, mobbity, mop. By the 60s, Vegas cats like Buddy Greco were doing it as an up-tempo uber-swinger with hepped-up whoops interpolated throughout. Nutty as it sounds, it works all the way to the finish. In the hush of the silvery dew Roses are flowering in Picardy But there's never a rose like you And that rose will die in the summertime And our rose may be so far apart But the one rose that dies not in Picardy, it's that rose that I keep. Oh, I see it in my sleep. Oh, the rose that I keep in my heart. Oh. Hmm, you don't get the feeling that Buddy Greco or Bobby Darin are over-exercised by the poignant evocations of the Great War. Uh, but putting such liberty takers aside, even Hubert Eisdell, Ernest Pike, uh, and the other tenors who made the first somewhat stiff recordings of it, seem to understand implicitly that it was something bigger and more profound than almost all the fragrant Edwardiana to which it harks back. Roses are shining in Picardy In the heart of the silvery dew Roses are flowering in Picardy But there's never a rose like you 
The authors are Fred Weatherly and Hayden Wood. Weatherly was a successful barrister, a King's Counsel on the Western Circuit of England's courts, but he dabbled in songwriting all his life and very successfully. His best-known song is the famous lyric to the London Derriere. Danny boy The pipes The pipes Are calling From glen To glen And down The mountainside The summer's gone And all the roses falling It's you, it's you must go And I must buy the London Derriere is uh, one of those traditional tunes that had been around a good half century before Weatherly got to it and had had many other sets of words appended to it, among them Ema's Farewell and Erin's Apple Blossom, uh, just to name two lyrics by the same guy, Alfred Percival Graves. When Danny Boy was published in 1912, Graves, an old friend of Weatherly's, flew into a huff at Fred's impertinence uh, in fixing words to a tune he'd already commandeered. In his splendid autobiography of his uh, musico-barristerial life, Piano and Gown, uh, Fred Weatherly justifies his lyric to Danny Boy this way, quote, Beautiful as Graves' words are, they do not, to my fancy, suit the London derriere. They seem to have none of the human interest which the melody demands. I am afraid my old friend Graves did not take my explanation in the spirit which I hoped, unquote. Still, Weatherly was right and Graves was wrong. That's one reason why Piano and Gown, an ancient memoir by a forgotten figure, is worth digging out. Styles of songs may have changed and had already changed by the time the author wrote his book, but that's still excellent songwriting advice. Any words can be fixed more or less competently to the London Derriere, but Danny Boy taps into the essence of the music and articulates it. Even more remarkably, the words weren't written to the tune. Weatherly had never heard the London Derriere until his sister-in-law sent it to him, and he realized it would make an excellent melody for a poem he happened to have written earlier, a syllable here, a syllable there, and Weatherly had completed the words that now seem so organically tied to that tune to the point where today it's all but impossible to hear the music of London Air without also conjuring Danny Boy, the pipes, the glens, the sunshine and shadow, and all the other marvellous imagery. But come ye back when summer's in the meadow Or when the valley's hushed and white with snow it's I'll be there in sunshine or in shadow. Oh, Danny boy, oh, Danny boy. 
In a songwriting profession whose British branch was notable for its hacks, the moonlighting King's Counsel, Fred Weatherly, was a rare talent. He was a man in late middle age when he wrote his two biggest hits, 62 at the time of Danny Boy and 68 at the time of Roses of Picardy. That's unusual, too. Most writers have youthful bursts of energy, a creative peak, and by the time they're in their 60s, are either gracefully declining or sputtering very erratically. But secure in his day job as a lawyer, Weatherly wrote for pleasure and never stopped enjoying it. A former tutor to the King of Siam, uh, Rogers and Hammerstein could well have written The King and Fred all about him. He was also a friend of Dickens and Gladstone. He serenaded the Queen Empress herself on Victoria's Diamond Jubilee in 1897. And although his lasting songs post-date Ragtime and early Irving Berlin, they, like him, have the whiff of the 19th century about them. Roses of Picardy is in some way the last great Victorian parlour ballad. Roses are shining in Picardy In the hush of the silver dew When war came in August 1914, his first song was conventional enough. Bravo, Bristol. It's a rough, rough road we're going. It's a tough, tough job to do. But sure as the wind is blowing, we mean to see it through. Who cares how the guns may thunder? Who ricks of the sword and flame? We fight for the sake of England and the honour of Bristol's name. It was stirring, but in a somewhat generic sense. Picardy came two years in, after the mud and the slaughter and the knowledge that this would be slogged out a lot longer than Tommy ever thought in 1914. Picardy was born as Danny Boy was, as words never intended for that tune. In this case, Weatherly had written them to music by Herbert Brewer, a composer and later the organist of Gloucester Cathedral, but the publisher rejected the song, and so Weatherly banked the lyric, and a while later tried again, this time to a tune by Hayden Wood. There's a story in circulation that Weatherly wrote this after being stationed in France and having an affair with a war widow. Doesn't seem to be true. He was married and in England at the time he wrote it. But perhaps that testifies to the author's gift for what he called human interest. After all, the verse sets up a very vivid scenario. She is watching by the poplars Calling it with a sea blue eyes She is watching and longing and where the long white roadway lies and the song stirs in the silence as the wind in the boughs above she listens and starts and trembles tis the first little song of It's not an ostentatious verse, but look at the specifics, the poplars, the eyes, the colour of the roadway. And over the years, I've come to have more respect for its music, too, for the way Hayden Wood sets the first half of the verse on the low notes, freighting the narrative with a kind of ambiguity, and then the second half on the high notes as a song stirs in the silence. The interval on which he puts silence is eerie and beautiful. Uh, Roses of Picardy is a kind of First World War I'll Be Seeing You, a ballad for lovers parted by circumstances beyond their control. 
It seems like a war song because uh, Picardy is in France and France was where the war was. But in a lyric of specifics, it actually is very non-specific about the precise situation. The war is present, but only by implication and in the ache of the notes on which flowering is set in that second couplet. Roses are shining in Picardy In the hush of the silver dew Roses are flowering in Picardy but there's never a rose like you. Why Picardy? And what's with the roses? Well, there's no real answer to that. Was it the war? British troops had found themselves in the neighbourhood before. There's a, a pre-Agincourt scene laid near a river in Picardy in Shakespeare's Henry V. But it's hard to believe any war-wounded squaddy shipped back to Blighty in 1916 would be thinking of Picardy in pastoral terms of poplars and long white roadways. According to Gilles Gousset, a great scholar of Hayden Wood's music, in the 19th century the designer William Morris described one of his wall-hanging and chintz patterns as evoking a floral meadow in Picardy in the summer. But unless he happened to have papered his study with it, it seems to me unlikely that that would have prompted Fred Weatherly to write a poem on the subject. Nevertheless, in France, the ballad was accepted as authentically Picardien, to the point where many continentals are surprised to discover it's actually an English song. A year after its publication in London, Pierre d'Amour wrote the first French lyric. Dès que revient la brunatidi, il n'en est de pareil à vous. It's a very literal translation, but it has some nice touches. Essaymon is a lovely poeticism, a flowery, uh, one might say. I'm going to bring that up with Monique in a bit. Uh, Decades later, though, a second French lyric was put to the tune by Eddie Manet. Uh, Monsieur Manet was a highly successful French songwriter, as successful as, uh, as you can get, who began his career writing for Edith Piaf and ended it by supplying Céline Dion with most of her francophone hits. But along the way, he was sufficiently taken by Roses of Picardy to write a brand new text for the song. Dire que Nous semblait vieillot Aujourd'hui Il me semble nouveau Et puis surtout C'était toi et moi Ces deux mots Ne vieillissent pas I love those words. They, they translate roughly as, uh, they say this tune is old-fashioned. Today it seems to me brand new. And especially, he continues, toi et moi, you and me. Uh, those are two words that will never grow old. Uh, Monsieur Maunet is, in effect, writing a song about the song, acknowledging that, yes, Rose de Picardie is dated, but it retains its potency. 
Uh, Yves Montand was one of many French singers who performed the new version, renamed Dansons la Rose, and he'd always begin by humming along to the music as if he were an old man recalling across the decades a long-ago love from 1916. On stage, during the instrumental break, Montand would place his arm around the waist of an invisible collinette and lead her in an imaginary dance. And then, with a wry Gallic chuckle, he'd close with Maunet's beautiful final couplet. Over recent decades, uh, that's become the definitive version of uh, Roses of Picardy in France. Uh, I I well remember in the 1980s uh, switching on a variety show in Paris and uh, watching uh, somebody do a a kind of 80s Euro disco version of it. I'm not sure what the author would have made of that. I do not claim to be a poet, said Fred Weatherly. I don't pretend that my songs are literary. But they are songs of the people, and that is enough for me. Longfellow expresses better than I can what I mean. Quote, long, long afterwards in an oak, I found the arrow still unbroke, and the song from beginning to end I found again in the heart of a friend. Or as Weatherly put it, reworking Longfellow's sentiment. So that's Roses of Picardy from a rejected tune, an accepted lyric, a new tune, a first French lyric, a second French lyric, a Vegas swinger in the 60s, a Euro disco hit in the 80s. And I thought, wouldn't it be great to just tie the entire history of Roses of Picardy together in one arrangement? except probably for the Euro disco and Vegas swing a bit. We can't do everything. Uh, and uh, and so uh, Kevin Amos and I came up with a, a fairly detailed uh, arrangement of Picardy in English and French. And then I thought, I don't know, uh, people aren't going to put up with me singing huge, great slabs of uh, French. There's probably a law against it somewhere. Uh, so I thought I'd bring in <laughs> my great friend, uh, and uh, one of the great uh, joys of music in Quebec, uh, Monique Fauteuil. And uh, Monique has graciously agreed to play the part of Collinette, as it were, in the a story of Roses of Picardy. And uh, Monique has sung with everyone, from uh, Charles Trenet to Patsy Gallant. So this is quite a come down for her to be singing with me. And, uh, and Monique... Uh, <laughs> This you know you knew this song when I when I uh, mentioned it to you, and you you knew the uh, the French lyric, uh, and after we we'd kind of run it down a couple of times, you very coyly uh, <laughs> produced from uh, somewhere in uh, on the other side of your piano a, a CD that you slipped to me, and the performance we're about to give of Roses of Picardy is in fact your second, because you recorded this song a a couple of years ago. Yes, of course. Um, 
in a totally different approach, right. as you, you might say. But actually, the title that I was uh, told uh, it, at that moment that the song had was Dansons la Rose. That's right. I, but... Um, let, you, you recorded it with uh, Francois Cousineau. And just explain, because uh, Monsieur Cousineau is a, uh, is a big name in the, uh, in the francophone music world. So just to explain a bit about him. Yes, François Cousineau is, a, is uh, we could say, a band leader, but uh, first mm. and foremost mm. a musician uh, who accompanied, who, who wrote music for uh, Diane Dufresne. Uh, right. he, te- he teamed up with Luc Plamondon uh, yeah. years ago to write hit songs for uh, Diane Dufresne. Yeah. And we, we've known each other since those years, in, somewhere in the mm. 70s. And um, he decided to, to do his own album at one point, like an instrumental album. He, he was writing uh, music for himself and decided to do a first recording and he called me to listen one afternoon and said, oh, I'd like to have your, you know, get your advice or just know what you think about this one. Should I put this one here and should I just never not, you know, not record that one or what do you think about it? And finally, from one thing to the next, we worked on a second album together and uh, on the third one, he wanted to sing. So right. he wanted to actually also team up with uh, different people. So he asked me if I would do the uh, a duet with him for the song Dansons la Rose, which I also knew as Rose de Picardie <laughs> because my grandmother used to sing it at the piano. My... <laughs> And my dad sang it uh, as, as well, so I, you know, I have that, I, you know, I get that from there. But uh, all of a sudden, the beat, he wanted this, this to be like a dancing song. He right. wanted, like, people to walk into a dance hall or a dance um, studio where, you know, you take dancing lessons and people would just want to automatically dance when they heard it. Right, <laughs> so right. that was his, uh, his, his idea with that. So, so th- yeah, this is a fairly rhythmic uh, treatment of mm-hmm, the song. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, this is Monique's uh, first uh, bite of the cherry or, or uh, <laughs> bite of the rose. And uh, Dansons la Rose with uh, Francois Cousineau.
And Monique, my uh, my French is uh, is pretty rough, but correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, the backing vocals are at a an entirely different language you're singing there. Yes, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> so you thought there, what, what, what language is it? Just uh, Spanish. Spanish, that's right. So you, you figured if you're doing an English tune with a French lyric, what absolutely makes the, the final coup de grace is uh, a Spanish backing vocal. Mm-hmm. And, and you have a family co- connection with the backing singers on uh, this track. Actually, yes, because um, we did the backing vocals with um, f- uh, my daughter, mm. but, but uh, actually François Cousineau has two daughters, magnificent daughters, mm. twins, who sing, mm. and uh, my daughter sings as well, so the, the three of them sang together, and I I sang with them along as well in the backing vocals just to do the... Uh, it, it was such a... It was it was fun to do. So that's uh, that's your daughter uh, Julie Valois, who's uh, yes. who's a singer and a songwriter in her own right as well. Okay, now <laughs> that's that. If you had to find a version of Roses of Picardy that's as far away as what we're going to do, that that version there is is about it. So we don't have we fired the Spanish backing singers <laughs> and uh, and we got rid of the dance hall feel and we went uh, went back to basics on this. And I looked at. Uh, Pierre Amour's first French lyric, the one written uh, back during the First World War, uh, Rose de Picardie, and there was a lovely word in there. Des roses s'ouvrent en Picardie, essaiement les aromes si doux. And I love the way essaiement sounded when you sang it, but I thought it might help if I had a clue as to what it meant. And I looked it up in uh, five or six French dictionaries, and I couldn't find it at all. And, uh, and, and uh, I, I, so I asked you, you know, wh- wh- what the hell does this word mean? Essaiement. Essaiement, les aromes si doux. Essaiement, it's written E-S-S-A-I-M. Yeah. Is, that's the beginning of it. Yeah. Essay is a, um, we, we would say like a, uh, is not a beehive, but uh, an essai d'abeille. It's a group of, eh, an, uh, a flock. Right. Uh, so it could be, I guess, SMA. It's old French, I, I, I would uh, right. assume, of course. But if you've checked in all these dictionaries <laughs> and haven't found it, um, SMA, uh, uh, I guess, putting together all, everything that uh, needs to be uh, said to, 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 to um, how do I say, um, to convey those feelings, I would right, think. Right. SMA, uh, uh, or the more les, les arômes. Concentrated, maybe, uh, or a lot of something, I, I would think. Yep. So it's like a like a, a kind of a cloud of uh, perfume, uh, yes, sort of perhaps, spreading of out, course, something of, like that. That's right. That would sound yes. That it's would a lo- it's a lovely word. It's a very orally appealing. It's beautiful, uh, yes, uh, and beautiful to sing. You, in fact, after after me trying to figure out what that word meant, you're actually going to be singing that particular <laughs> word. But um, you, your best guess, it's it's a kind of archaic kind of poetic French. I would uh, think so, yeah. but we must find out for sure <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> to know. Um, but I've, I had never heard it, and I thought it was beautifully written, of course. So, essaiement leurs arômes si doux. Yeah, it's a lovely line. Okay, and as I said, uh, this is our great summation of this song uh, after almost a century, and uh, Monique is, in effect, playing the part of Colinette, and I am the uh, the lovesick uh, Swain. So I'll come in and do my chorus, and then uh, and then Monique will come in. And Claire McInerney is going to play us in on her clarinet. Mm-hmm. 
roses a-shining in Picardy In the hush of a silvery dew Roses a-flowering in Picardy There's never a rose like you And the roses will die with the summertime And our roads may be so far apart There's one rose that dies Not in Picardy The rose I keep in my heart She is watching by the poplars Colinet with the sea blue eyes She is watching and longing and waiting Where the long white roadway lies And a song stirs in the silence As the wind in the trembles It's the first little song of love Des roses s'ouvrent en Picardie She sees the road by the poplars 
where they met in the bygone years, and the first little song of the roses is the last little song she hears. Roses are shining in Picardy in the hush of the silvery dew. C'était toi et moi Ces deux mots ne vieillissent pas Souviens-toi, ça parlait de la Picardie Et des roses qu'on trouve là-bas Tous les deux amoureux Nous avons dansé les roses de ce temps-là. There's one rose that dies not in Picardy. The rose I keep in my heart in my heart Roses of Picardy uh, from Monique and me to you. One chorus, two verses, two interludes, one English lyric, two French lyrics, 4-4 uh, time, waltz time. We pretty much covered the whole, uh, whole turf there. And there were a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, nice players in, uh, in Kevin Amos's band there, but I, I would like to single out not just uh, Claire on the, on the clarinet, but uh, Pete Walton on guitar and uh, Jonathan Hill on violin, uh, and mm. especially uh, thank you very much, uh, merci beaucoup to ma très chère collinette uh, for this performance, Monique. Thank you very much indeed. Avec plaisir, Marc. It was a real pleasure. That's, I hope we do this again. <laughs> that's great, because uh, whatever it came in at, at 22 minutes, so the next, <laughs> next time we'll do... We'll, uh, we'll do Die Meistersinger von Nuremberg, the whole thing. A one and a two and a three. <laughs> Thank you very much, buddy. Thank you, Mark. Why is it that songs appeal? mused Fred Weatherly, King's Council. Is there not a story in each, a melody which remains deep down in our hearts. We may listen to the noblest sermons, we may study the deepest philosophy, we may be elevated by the loftiest speeches, we may read the brightest pages of history, 
and yet none appeal to us with quite the same appeal. Song and story appeal to the heart. From the heart they come, and to the heart they go. Of the Week is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises. All rights reserved.